keeping it local all day, every day. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Sabah al khair and welcome to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. Now, coming up from 11 a.m., we're going to be talking about why we need a bit of crazy to get creative. I spoke to Dr. Leonard Molodinov, the theoretical physicist and best-selling author, recognized for groundbreaking discoveries in physics and has a passion for making science accessible and interesting to everyone. I talked to him about his book, Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior. It describes how a person's thoughts, decisions, and feelings are profoundly influenced by the behind-the-scenes operation of the unconscious mind. But it's his latest book, Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, that has everyone talking about how we need to adapt our thinking to thrive in the modern age. We talk unconscious bias, why you need crazy to be creative, and why you should be thinking a lot more like ants, and what it was like writing a book with the late, great Stephen Hawking. That's all coming up. You're listening to Pulse 95. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Yes, it's uh, Life Beats on Pulse 95. And, of course, the Sharjah International Book Fair is in full swing right now. I had a fascinating conversation with the best-selling author, Dr. Leonard Molodinov. He is a guest at this year's Sharjah International Book Fair. And I started out by asking him about his award-winning book, Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behaviour. And this is what he had to say. You've uh, accomplished a lot. Five uh, New York Times bestsellers. Uh, you've written for TV. Uh, you've written books with the late Stephen Hawking. But I want to ask you about your book, Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior. How does it? <laughs> <laughs> with an iron fist. <laughs> People tend to think that they do everything intentionally or through their will. And what people aren't aware of is that there's a lot of processes that go on in your brain that you're not aware of. And, of course, that's why they're not aware of it. <laughs> and actually, most of what you do, what you feel, what you believe, what you think is driven by unconscious processing that's going on. And then eventually, at the end point, something might pop into your consciousness. Right. But if you just look at our evolutionary heritage, look at lower animals that we evolved from, they don't hardly have a, a conscious mind and they live solely on their unconscious and their reactions and, and their decision making and that's the way that all animals were built and that, that really suffices. The question really shouldn't be why is your unconscious so important but why do we even have consciousness and nobody really has a really good answer to that. Um, it's actually the opposite way it's around. The opposite, yes, it is. Because we think of you know our conscious mind as because that's where the focus of psychology is. That is where the focus of behavior is. That from when we're born, how do we control our behavior? And we use our conscious mind to do that. But you're actually saying it's more important to understand the subconscious. Yeah, and you know, uh, in Western culture, people started getting interested in that in the late 19th century. Uh, uh, the most famous person who pushed that was Sigmund Freud, who started doing that around the turn of the century. He started out as a real scientist, and then he turned into a uh, more of a clinician. 
and his theories, because he wasn't really a scientist, uh, don't really hold up. But, but what was important was that he focused on the unconscious. But just in the last 20 or so years, psychology as a field has focused on the unconscious and discovered all sorts of amazing things. And as a result, whole new fields have started, like behavioral economics, for instance, where they gave the Nobel Prize, or I think it was 2004, to, um, to Kahneman, um, really for showing that a lot of our decision-making uh, financially is not due to our conscious reasoning, but due to our unconscious and, and often unconscious biases that, that, that mislead us. But I would say that usually your conscious is pretty, pretty on point, but there are times when it, when it isn't. It was designed, after all, for when we lived on the African savanna, when we were living in the wild, and over the last 10,000 years since humanity has settled down, we haven't evolved very much. So because of that, uh, it may not be completely appropriate to our civilized world, but in general, it, it works quite well. I mean, even in our discussion, when I speak, you understand me without really analyzing what the meanings of the words are. If I say a word that has several meanings, you don't think which meaning is it and reason it out. Your unconscious mind does that for you. It, it, it makes you understand me. And when I'm speaking, it's the same thing. If I'm speaking a language that I hardly know, then I... And we all know, if you've done that, how awkward that is and how slow and how ridiculous it is. Whereas when you speak in your mother tongue, it just flows because that's your unconscious mind. When, when, you, when you look at me, the, the data that hits your retina, that's a picture of me, is, is, is not what you're perceiving. What you're perceiving is, is an, really an imagined fiction that your brain builds uh, of, what, of what you're seeing based on this experience in the world. So if you were to look at, for instance, at, at the data that, that's reaching your retina of my face, you would find that it, just raw, unprocessed data, you would find that it, it looks weird. It's very fuzzy except right at the center because your peripheral vision is not very good. The, 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 the coloration is not good in the periphery either. In dark light, it's hardly there at all. And somehow through different layers of processing, just like the Photoshop on your computer, it sharpens it, it puts it together, and it gives you the impre you know, the, the vision that you have of me. This is some precious mind working. Yeah, and in my book I have a, uh, in Subliminal, I have a picture that a neuroscientist supplied me of what the unprocessed data image would look like compared to what you actually perceive. And it's amazing that how, how horrible it is. And if you had to do that consciously, you couldn't do it. Because you're not a mathematician, you don't know how to, how to take raw fuzzy data and make it sharp right but your mind does we're not a computer but the mind is a computer yes and that's exactly what it's doing and these are the the, the benefits of the the subconscious mind but there are times as well when the subconscious mind can in fact work against us when we make assumptions about the way that people look I know that you've spoken about this in terms of you know when people vote for candidates in elections and how that can influence yeah, there's some very interesting studies. One of them was about 10 years ago, and the scientists gathered black and white headshots, photos of the head uh, of the two competing candidates in different races for governor, for the Senate, for the House of Representatives. And he showed them to subjects in the, in the laboratory, and he said, I'm, I'm, he shows them a pair of pictures, and he, he said, pick which one do you think looks more competent? And they, they just looked at him for a couple seconds. So it was a very gut instinct selection. And this was before the election occurred. And then he said, okay, I'm going to predict the elections now, not based on any polling, or I'm not going to ask them consciously who do they prefer, study the issues. And most of these were candidates that they didn't know. In fact, they didn't 
if someone recognized it, either of the candidates, they threw that one out. So these are people, Completely people based on in the one photos. state looking at photos of people running in another state. They didn't know who they were looking at. So just based on the photos, not based on their conscious reasoning. And he predicted the outcome based on who they thought looked more competent, and, and that was correct in 70% of the time. So even though we think that we're not voting based on looks, we, we really are because it would have been 50-50 if we were really not based on looks. So that, that was quite a striking study. Next time you're looking at a picture of somebody or you meet someone for the first time, think about what's going on in your unconscious mind. A fascinating look into what's going on there. I'm in conversation with Dr. Leonard Mladenov. He's a theoretical physicist, a best-selling author, five New York Times bestsellers to his name. And coming up next, he's going to be telling me why we need to think more like ants to be more creative. That's coming up next. Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Life Beats. It's Pulse 95. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Welcome back to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa, and I am in conversation with Dr. Leonard Mladenov. A theoretical physicist and best-selling author, recognized for groundbreaking discoveries in physics and a passion for making science accessible to all. And uh, something that he talks about in his new book, Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, is why we should be thinking more like ants. He tells us more. Life Beats, Life Beats. with Sally Musa, only on Pulse 95. In ordinary programming, you, you write what's called an algorithm wh where you're telling the computer step-by-step step what to do. If you see this, do that. If that's the result, do that. If this, do that. And they're all if-then statements like that. And the computer just follows one order after another, uh, maybe looking at the data input or looking at the result of the last calculation, what do I do now? And it's all laid out for the computer. So there, the programmer is the boss, the CEO. Now bottom-up is quite different. Bottom-up is like like the way ants work. Ants are very simple creatures. They don't have a lot of thinking as far as we know. They react according to very simple programs. If something's in your way, turn left, turn around, or if you sense a certain chemical, do this or that. There's some rules that they follow. And uh, each one as an individual is very dumb and, and follows a very simple set of rules. But when you put thousands of them together, they can do amazing things. So if you see, watch an ant colony, you might see the ants, let's say, crawling on a leaf, and then there's another leaf they want to get to, but there's a gap. And they, they form a bridge yeah. across the gap uh, with their own bodies. Well, there's no, the queen isn't ordering them around. There's no boss ant telling them what to do. It, it, it's something that evolved through millions of years of evolution. Their little individual programs have evolved in a way that they all work together so that when certain situations happen, this is the result. That's called bottom-up thinking. So, so that's when the, the individual elements, somehow when you add it all up, the, 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 uh, you get something that's greater than the sum of the parts. How does that happen? Well, if, with ants, it happens over evolution. So ants doing these simple programs, when they didn't work, let's say the colony goes, it gets killed by chance uh, evolve something that happened to allow them to do that, then they, they flourish, and, and so it, things evolve that way. 
but in, in our society, that can you know, when in a corporation, for example, I have a fr- had a friend who told me that uh, her boss said, "It's my job to tell you what to do, and it's your job to do it." That's top down. Right. But in the bottom up, which a lot of the newer you know internet or startup companies are, everybody's trying to think of a of answer, and they're all talking to each other, they're all contributing something, and somehow something grows out of it. Yeah. And that's the way your brain works. Well, your brain has both. So your brain has a certain amount of top-down, which they call executive control, where larger structures are regulating what other structures are doing. But a lot of it, and this is where your ideas come from, are, is the ant way of doing things. So your, your individual neurons are very simple, like ants. They collect signals, and when it gets to a certain threshold, they fire. And uh, it's the firing causes other ones to fire or it inhibits them. They can be both excitatory or inhibitory, but they each, when one, one unit gets enough, it sends signals to other units. And somehow the 86 billion cells in your, you know, neurons in your brain come up with ideas and thoughts. So this is the bottom-up way of working, and that's where creativity and new ideas come from. And, and it's really the, the, the beauty and the brilliance of your brain as opposed to the top-down programming where your brain is exercising, say, logical thought, yeah. right? But if you're exercising logical thought, you can solve problems that have been set up for you where, you where you've learned how to solve them or you've solved them before or they're similar to things that you've solved. You can execute a certain procedure, but to get ideas to deal with something new, you need that bottom-up. So that's really the most amazing thing about the brain. So this is how you tap into more creativity in the brain. That's where creativity comes from. How do you kind of adopt more of that bottom-up approach every day? Well, it's interesting because the way your brain operates when you're facing a certain problem depends on your mindset. And uh, scientists have shown, and they do experiments where they give people a problem that can be solved either by logical thought or by people stopping their focus and letting the idea pop into their mind. Did you ever have a problem where you couldn't find the answer and you're taking a shower and bam, you get it, or you're jogging, or this idea comes to you in the middle of the night? So it's that, like when you've stopped kind of focusing on it and taking a step back. Yeah, like and that's when the bottom-up brain is like giving you ideas, right? Because As opposed people to the, talk about, you know, like having that kind of like that white space or that d- time where you just do nothing because that's when, you know, all of those uh, kind of connections in the brain happen is that right yeah so that's one way to do it is to make sure you have those times to give yourself that freedom and to say to yourself sometimes taking a break is the, is the best way to work hard not to just keep pushing but let it go and there's other ways to encourage your brain to, to do that what you want to do is you want to get away from pre preset ideas uh, from notions of how things should be done and you want to open yourself up so for instance, arguing with someone or, or interacting with someone who thinks differently from you is, is good. It's good to do regularly. So a lot of people try arguing to... You, you try to yeah, yeah, it's a good thing. You try to set yourself up. You know, people try to avoid situations of uh, dissent and conflict, right? But they're actually good for you, and, and uh, they, they open your mind. And, and being exposed to other ways of thinking in one area carries over to other areas. Wow. Um, also, uh, realizing... So get into an argument. Get into
Life Beats, Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Yes, we are talking to Dr. Leonard Molodinov and uh, his book, Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, is such a timely book. It's all about the psychology and neuroscience of change and how elastic thinking can help us navigate the information age to help us thrive in the modern world. So much is coming at us. What do we do with it? How do we process that information so that we can move forward? And in this part of the interview, he tells us about how reframing the question, such a simple strategy, can do so much to give us the right answers. The way to have a creative society or be creative in your own life is to be around people who think differently, look different. So that kind of exposure is good for you. Because this is where your book, Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, comes in. And I, I can't think of a more timely book for where we are right now. So this is something that you're advocating, having more elastic thinking, and, and it kind of speaks to your point that you're making right now in that we have to put ourselves in situations that question our assumptions, which conflict does actually quite well, and maybe we should be embracing conflict and failure and mistakes. Oh, definitely. And that's one of the points of the book is that all do all those things. So people like to forget about their failures and when the times they were wrong, and I said, no, you should dwell on that. So that, because when you get to a problem that you can't solve, it's because you're thinking the wrong way well, quite often. Quite often the solution is easy. It's once you stop thinking about it the wrong way, like a riddle, for instance, I give a few riddles that I took from an actual scientific paper where they were testing how people solve riddles. One of them was Marjorie and Margie were born on the same year, same month, same day, same hour, from the same parents, but they're not twins. You know, how can that be? This is like most riddles. It's difficult because you're you're frozen into some assumptions that are wrong. In this case, you're assuming that they're the only, you picture them as a pair, so they're, you think that they're the two that were born, but the answer is they no, it was twins, tri- they were triplets. Not. There you go. So, so the picture of them as twins is blocking you from seeing the very easy answer that they're triplets. If I were to ask you if I had multiple births, do they have to be twins? You'd say, of course not. Sometimes there's triplets, quadruplets. But when I say it to you the way this riddle does, you're, you're, you're blocked from that thought. And a lot of solving problems is, is to get rid of those blocks, those, those you know, that, that you're focused on or thinking a certain way. So how better to do that than to be in a culture or you know, in a surroundings where, where, that, where there's other ways of thinking are very common? So how does elastic thinking help us to deal with the overwhelming deluge of, of information that is coming at us in this day and age? It's difficult because we are getting much more information than we were built than we were built for. And the question is how to react to it. And you you can't be successful today by having a, a set series of reactions that like we used to in the past, that you all your go-to ways of reacting. I mean just look at in, in businesses uh, I was just talking to someone the other day about uh, uh, Blockbuster. Did you have that here, Blockbuster? Yes, of course, yeah. yes. So, so Blockbuster sold store. the video store. They yep. sold video cassettes, and they never thought to themselves, maybe you know, that this is a technology that maybe someday will be superseded. I mean, there had been this was before the whole internet boom, but there were plenty of times in history where technologies changed. And after all, the video cassettes themselves were somewhat new. Then this little Netflix came along with this silly thing of sending people mailing. 
you know, which was more convenient. You couldn't mail a video cassette because it's too heavy and too fragile and too big. But they, but but Netflix said, oh, these little C, uh, DVDs, uh, we can we can send these through the mail. Why don't we do that? And apparently, people at Blockbuster were too set in their thinking to 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 look at that that way to accept the new information, right? They could have bought Netflix uh, early on, and they could be the Netflix today. But they couldn't see that. They couldn't. Uh, they couldn't accept the new information. They couldn't go with the flow. Now Netflix is different. Netflix, after they knocked off Blockbuster, they started to get threatened by uh, by online delivery. Instead of doing nothing, like Blockbuster did, they they reacted and they said, "Oh, uh, we're going to start uh, an online service." And I remember it was a it's little streaming. controversial at first. We're yeah. going to start streaming. And gradually, the, the other part went away, but they, they went with the flow, and so they, they, they adapted. And, you know, that, that's the way it is in your life today, too. In your own life, you have to be adaptable today, or you're going to get in trouble. So we've already spoken about questioning your own assumptions. Reframing questions is something else that you say is a characteristic of elastic thinking. How do you do that? Well, a lot of times the way, the, the, the reason that you're not making progress is the way the question is put, which suggests a certain answer, like with a riddle, where you, you, you're specifically designed the riddle to suggest a certain way of looking at it. So the, the way you ask a question often pushes you towards a certain answer or keeps you from seeing the right answer. And my favorite example of that, even though it's slightly technical, is Einstein with the theory of special relativity, because uh, physicists had noticed in the late 19th century that there were problems with the theory that they had of electromagnetism. And people were working on it, but they were working on it within the. Uh, the question was, um, how do, do these problems get resolved within Newton's laws? Uh, how, how, how does this uh, this problem with the speed of light, and how is it that the speed of light uh, has these issues, and and how how what what can we say about uh, the physical structure of space that will resolve this? Because they thought that that space was some medium, that wave that light had to go through some medium that they used to call it the ether, and everything was filled with this. And so the question was, what are the properties of the ether that, that make this funny thing happen? And Einstein came along, and he didn't ask it that way at all. He just said, what would it, more generally, what would explain this funny thing? What was it about, you know, what kind of equations of space and time would make this problem go away, rather than, you know, than assuming that there's a physical constitution there? And with a little algebra that any, any high school kid today can do, he figured out, and that was a special theory of relativity, his first big breakthrough. And it had nothing to do with brilliant math or, um, or even, in a way, problem solving. It had to do with just asking the question without a direction pre-assigned to it and then following where it led. Coming up next with Dr. Leonard, we uh, find out why you need those crazy ideas to get to the brilliant ones. More coming up on Life Beats on Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Talk about radio? It's Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95. Yes, I'm in conversation with Dr. Leonard Mladenov and uh, we're talking creativity and he tells me here why you need to let in those crazy ideas to find the brilliance. The other uh, part of it is how, how we generate ideas and relaxing those filters that can stop us from producing in our minds crazy 
or maybe brilliant ideas. Well, your mind in its bottom-up thinking is always generating ideas. And so many ideas that, that if you were aware of all of them, this is your unconscious mind, if you were aware of all of them, you would just drown like people, some people who are mentally ill do. They, they, they have so many ideas, most of which are unreal and crazy, that they can't even function. Is that why brilliant people are often... I don't know. Not often, but you know, you do well, so, see those so who are certain geniuses. types of brilliant people are brilliant in the sense that that they their filters are low, and, and so what happens is your brain your brain has certain filters to keep unpromising ideas from coming to your mind and distracting you and and confusing you and just taking up your time, and, and those filters uh, tend to let conventional ideas through and keep away the unconventional ideas, and the unconventional ideas are usually stupid, dumb, silly. In Elastic, I quoted some uh, of a transcript of Steven Spielberg and some other people brainstorming uh, the Indiana Jones movie and some of the stupid ideas they were coming up with, you know, if their filters down. But to be creative, you have to let the filters down, and then you look at what comes up. And that's not necessarily easy. And people who can naturally do that better, in a way, can't necessarily control it. So those crazy ideas and notions and uh, impulses also happen in their everyday life which is why they seem so weird to us yeah and so we have to just learn to just let it all in and then edit and then edit later right yeah. and then by the way writers will always tell you that you don't write and edit at the same time so when you're writing you're not editing you're not like going is this sentence good is this idea is this story stupid you're just like letting it out and you go back later and fix it because if you, if you try and make it right the first time nothing comes out Exactly. Um, you've written two books with the late great Stephen, Stephen Hawking. Hawking. What was that like working with him? Well, it was a, a pretty amazing. You know, the, really the most unusual aspect of it, as you might imagine, was that he that he doesn't speak and that he 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 communicated very slowly. So uh, when we were working together, it was about six words a minute. Uh, wow. So we're doing an interview now where we're you're talking, I'm talking. It's going very fast back and forth. And you're, you know, I'm not stopping to think about what you're asking. I'm just answering you, right? Uh, so when, when, your if your questions were to come out much more slowly, it would give me more time to think, and you might get a different answer or a, or a deeper answer, or more interesting answer. But people don't talk that way. But with him, you do. So I, I found that was very, um, to me, a, a revelation that. If you just slow things down sometimes you get you do you get better answers better results it also helped me keep up with his thinking because he thought faster than I could but he couldn't get it out so it gave me a chance to keep up Wow <laughs> just a phenomenal amazing um, but in terms of you've written for TV shows as well uh, like Star Trek um, so you've done a lot of different types of writing uh, is it fun writing for television what's that like uh, yeah, writing it with that was fun. Writing fiction is fun because uh, you don't, what, what you say doesn't have to be true. <laughs> Whereas if you're writing nonfiction or you're doing physics, you have that constraint which sometimes kills what seems like a good idea. But writing for TV is not much fun because there's too many bosses, right? Because and that's the, that's the old story about Hollywood where the you know the writer is uh, on the low end of the totem pole and they're all you know everyone is telling you I want. To, this I want that, or they—it's it, not like writing a, a novel. If you're writing a book, uh, that pretty much your editors respect you. But when you write for television or film, it's not quite. What's next for you? Well, I'm I'm writing a book now, another a book on on psychology, neuroscience of emotion. Wow! And that's fun. And that's uh, going to be fascinating. That's what are you I focusing so. on specifically? It's uh, well, there's a lot of new. Uh, 
science in that area. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see what role emotions play in, 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 in your world and your thinking, how that affects you, where they come from, why we have them, how ours differ from those of animals. There's a lot of interesting Why are some people more emotive than others? Why are some more the emotional style? Yeah. I, for example, I burst into tears at um, emotive music. If I hear arousing music, sometimes it's not even, but I just, I want to cry and I don't know why. And uh, maybe I'll answer that in my book. <laughs> I think you should. I'll, I'll, that's a good suggestion. It's so fascinating. I will look into that. I, I, I know that's true, and I feel I felt that too. Dr. Lennon Molodinov, what an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks. It's been fun. An amazing, amazing man who's done so much and uh, a really fun time talking to him. Dr. Leonard uh, Molodinov and uh, the many books that he has written, uh, the latest of which is, of course, Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change. He's one of the uh, guests at the Sharjah International Book Fair and plenty more uh, amazing authors to catch there as well. And don't forget, if you missed any part of that conversation or anything else on the show, our podcast are always up every single day on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud for Life Beats. Just subscribe and then you won't miss a thing. If you want to get in touch with me, I would love to hear from you. Lifebeats at smc.ae is the email address. And don't forget, join us again tomorrow from 10 a.m. on Life Beats. We're going to be talking Diwali. Yes, the food, the fashion, the jewelry, and more. It's going to be so exciting. That is coming up from 10 a.m. tomorrow. Have a fabulous day and see you then. Keeping it local all day, every day.